This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Just to me and my vagina hanging out. I think of it as like tacos and burritos, like pretty similar ingredients, just different configuration. Yes, yes, you got that right. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? I don't suppose it's controversial to say that men don't know much about women's reproductive systems, but I was interested to learn from a new book called Vagina Obscura how little women know about them. Women have the experience, of course, of having vaginas and uteruses and and menstruation and the many ways these things can turn on her. But actual empirical investigation of these things is scarily recent. The author, Rachel Gross, joins me via Skype from Brooklyn, I think, New York, is it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Rachel, thank you for coming on Books Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Your subtitle is An Anatomical Voyage, and it's a voyage of discovery, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And as you were saying, very recent discovery um, and really discoveries that are expanding the way we think about the female body and the male body and men and women. Your book is uh, it's filled with case histories and, and, and personal stories. And, and <laughs> that's not because of some sort of warm, girly female point of view. It's, it, it, there's a reason for that. Um, yes. So there's definitely a, kind of a weaving of stories from um, women themselves who have either issues with their reproductive systems or experiences with the medical system that are relevant. And then I also spoke to hundreds of doctors and scientists, and I'm really trying to get across this multitude of perspectives and kind of weave them together into a tapestry. And partially that is a response to what I kind of characterize as a kind of mono view um, that science has taken in regard to the female body. That's one of the things that interests me most about the book, and I actually want to talk about that. But is it okay if we start with your own story? You say at one point in the book, I knew nothing about how my vagina worked. Um, so w- what was your experience? What brought you to this subject? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, to be clear, I was working at Smithsonian Magazine here in D.C., um, and I was a science editor, and I'd been in science reporting for many years. Um, So I'd been thinking about issues of gender bias in science. I'd been reporting on um, unsung women in the history of science and about reproductive health for a long time. Um, But I did mention this experience that kind of crystallized this for me, and that was uh, in... 2018 when I had a vaginal infection and it was very unpleasant. Um, I think I refer to it as my burning bush. (laughs) Um, And my gynecologist kept prescribing me antibiotics. Um, At first she thought it was a yeast infection. When she realized it wasn't, then it was antibiotics. Um, And nothing nothing worked. And eventually she said to me, um, like, I, I'm sorry, this is a really common thing. It happens to one in three women. It's called BV or bacterial vaginosis. Um, and for some people, it just comes back again and again. Um, and if you want, you can try this last resort. It's called boric acid, and it's basically rat poison. Which is uh, incredible. Uh, that, that that's the, in 2018, that that's the treatment for something which aff- aff- afflicts as many women as, as it does. Exactly. Um, It's the most common vaginal condition or infection. Um, Most people will 
have it once in their lifetime, that or like a yeast infection. And this, there's no really good treatment for recurrent um, bouts of it. So yeah, this is like this pretty ancient treatment and it is a like suppository that you stick up your vagina. And so I had to do that every day for 10 days. Um, and uh, as I go into in the book, um, this is where my experience may vary from others. Um, I woke up one night in the middle of the night and realized I hadn't done the suppository and took the pill to the bathroom and was still half asleep and accidentally swallowed it like a pill. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to be clear, it looks just like any antibiotic or multivitamin. Um, but yeah, you can imagine I was pretty freaked out. And that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, what have I been taking? I just trusted my doctor. Um, I wanted to get rid of this, but I don't know what boric acid is. It sounds really scary. It's got the word poison and a skull and crossbones on the container it comes in. And I have no idea what it's going to do if I swallow it. And I you know, quickly looked it up on Google and it said the first hit that I got was like death by ingestion of boric acid uh, and call poison control. So um, I did end up in the ER and found out pretty quickly that I would have had to take like a cup of of this substance to do any harm. I was probably just gonna have a little gas um, and I was completely fine. They gave me crackers, charged me like $200 American healthcare. Um, but that's when I just had this feeling of like being, being very alienated from my own body and realizing that I was trusting a medical system that maybe I shouldn't, maybe they actually don't know everything about my reproductive system and like putting myself in their hands was not the best way forward. Uh, and that really started me thinking on if, if I don't know this stuff and I've been a science reporter for this long and I have some feeling that I know about my body, um, you know, millions of other people must also have uh, questions. Well, I have to say that one of the things that your book is rather brilliant on is, is exactly that, how the, how the failures of, uh, of anatomical understanding of women's bodies is, is less to do with science than with, uh, with cultural prejudice, uh, uh, assumptions about the social purposes of women's bodies, <laughs> having babies, and, 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 you know, the mad projections of the scientists, well, I say scientists, um, you, you can, you're pretty scathing about um, people all the way from, well, Hippocrates and, and Galen all the way through to Freud, and legitimately so. Yeah, um, I haven't heard the word scathing, but I'll take it. Um, so I guess how I come to see it is it's, it's so interesting how you put that, that um, it's about cultural assumptions about women and not about the science. I think it's inseparable. Um, my whole point is that science is not a view from nowhere. And I think this is a pretty common view today. We understand that who you are and what you bring to the science helps shape the science. Um, but I still think there's a tendency to believe there's some sort of objective truth and there is some sort of objective map of the female body in this case. And I think through all these examples I use, I'm showing that none of it, uh, was objective. And uh, we did get closer and closer to some form of reality once we start getting more voices, people with more backgrounds, and people from different disciplines coming in and filling in our blind spots. Oh, and also um, starting to see the female body not just as a sort of inferior male body. You, you, you make the point that it's only in, is it 1993, you say, that there was a federal mandate to include women and minorities in clinical research. So they weren't yeah. even looking at women. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so that was following um, the AIDS crisis and the women's health movement. So it was kind of like something that they had to be pressured to do here um, at the NIH. So, right, the male body has long been taken as the standard and the ideal. And I do trace that back to ancient Greece. Um, like the idea evolved over time. But I argue that science has long looked at women through a pretty narrow lens. And that's usually a lens of reproduction, um, treating her as a walking womb, and focusing on all the organs that we call the reproductive organs only insofar as they can make a baby, which they may not be at all in a woman's life, or they may be doing for 1% of her life, or they may be supporting your health, and you're not a woman, you're a non-binary person or a trans man. Um, so this assumption about yeah, what women are for really limited the kind of science we were doing and ultimately our understanding of all of these really important organs. And, and of course, <laughs> concomitant with that is, is that um, people weren't actually looking at, um, at, at women's bodies. They were, you, you know, you, you've got um, Hippocrates never looked at a woman um, and uh, old Galen uh, thought it was just, it was a uh, women's reproductive system was just an inverted male one and didn't really need to be looked at. And so, inevitably we come to the clitoris the clitoris is not is not even acknowledged as a part of the system until uh, only two or three hundred years ago well it was on and off acknowledged and um, it was written about so I think of it more like it was lost and found throughout the centuries um, Galen definitely didn't didn't catch that but Aristotle mentioned he saw kind of a column or firm part in rats. Um, and in the 1800s, we had some really exquisite illustrations of the interior clitoris. But the weird thing is that knowledge never caught on and disseminated. And, you know, to this day, you have anatomy textbooks that minimize the clitoris or omit parts of it, or just label the glands, which is equivalent to the head of the penis so just the part you can see and touch cards on the table that. it was all new to me of course i've <laughs> i've heard of the clitoris <laughs> as many men have but Oof. the the structure of it and the the extent of it absolute news to me and that's that's amazing really in, in yes. this day and age i suspect it's probably true for quite a lot of women as well isn't it uh, I, I, i'm gonna have to ask you in case there's anybody listening who isn't familiar about the structure and the extent of the clitoris yeah. Oh, I love to describe it. Um, so I describe it as kind of this like penguin spaceship wishbone shape. But um, just imagine the part that's on the outside that some people call a nub, which I don't love. Um, but that, like I said, is the, the head of the I penis. I always thought it was the whole thing. I mean, you're not alone. Like you said, many people, including women and men, thought that, um, which goes to to go to say, like, why hasn't this information gotten out there? Um, so there's a shaft underneath that part um, that goes back like the shaft of the penis. And that attaches to um, what some people call the body of the clitoris. So there's these two bulbs kind of teardrop shaped that surround and hug the vagina and they are around the urethra and the vagina. And then there's these two arms that flare back into the pelvis against the pubic bones. Um, and those can be up to three inches each. So this is a pretty extensive structure and it interacts with all these other parts of the pelvis. Um, so it is like 
hugging the vagina and the urethra, and it's made up of erectile tissue that can swell and engorge with blood. Again, like not unfamiliar, right? Like we know how penises <laughs> yeah. work. <laughs> um, so why don't we realize that? I mean, and it makes perfect sense. They all grow out of the same exact embryological tissues in the womb. They have the same function. They're the same kind of tissues. They're the same like spongiosum um, erectile tissues. So yeah, I think of it as like tacos and burritos, like pretty similar ingredients, sometimes the same, just different configuration. And and, and this means that, uh, and we go back to Freud, we can be as rude as we like about Freud, be my guest. <laughs> but it, Freud had, um, you know, had the, this transference from a clitoral uh, focus to a, a vaginal focus. And that's, that's the adult woman's uh, appropriate sexuality. But uh, did I, did, am I right in getting from the book that, um, any vaginal um, pleasure is actually clitoral because it, it's the clitoris around the uh, vagina that's that's <laughs> doing the responding. Yes, yes, you got that right. Um, right. So, yeah, I do have a lot to say about Freud. I guess scathing is not a bad term. I will take that. Um, so Freud came up with this theory that infantile children have quote-unquote clitoral orgasms and in order to become an adult woman you have to transfer that orgasm to your vagina the organ of the adult woman which by no coincidence is the organ through which insemination and baby ejection happens so the bit he was interested uh, in yeah exactly and like this was um interwar period and there was a big focus on um, pronatalism on having more babies and Again, what a woman is for. Uh, and like, I just want to stress, he was not in any way trained in female anatomy and had like absolutely no insight into the clitoris that we know of. He had trained as like a neurologist studying the brains of crayfish at some point well, and then became a psychoanalyst. You say, though, that Freud wasn't interested in gynecological anatomy, but his theories influenced mm -hmm. people's the uh, ideas about it, which is <laughs> the big problem. Exactly. That's like, I didn't even want to write about Freud or have him be a big character in the book, but I continuously saw his theories pop up again and again in gynecological textbooks and the surgeons I was talking to, and that's what convinced me that he needed to be addressed um, and maybe taken down a peg. Well, let's move Freud to one side then. Um, I hope you'll forgive me. We have to do <laughs> the case history of Princess Marie Bonaparte because for me it's bonkers. Can uh, She knew Freud and in fact Freud influenced her bigly as uh, an ex-president <laughs> might have said. Um, tell me about Princess Marie Bonaparte. Yeah, I think she and Freud were really besties. They were very close. Um, so Marie Bonaparte, great-grandniece of Napoleon, who you may have heard of. Um, she grows up in interwar France. She is a noblewoman. She always wants to be a doctor, but her her family convinces her she needs to marry rich and kind of um, carry on the noble line, and so she becomes a princess. Um, and in her 40s, she's married with two kids, and she has this frustration because she's not having the sexual experience that she thinks she should be. She thinks she should be having this vaginal orgasm during the missionary position, which, let me be clear, is not a common occurrence and not the normal response. Um, and she ends up going to Freud for help to try to understand what's wrong with her, um, as she thinks. She thinks she's, quote, frigid. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with her. Um, so, this is when she starts to absorb this, these ideas about the clitoral and vaginal orgasm and kind of believe that she has a very strong or stubborn 
clitoris and that she has this masculine side to her um, and she can't find harmony between the two. Um, so she ends up being his pupil and um, he's her psychoanalyst and that's when she starts coming to a different conclusion. Um, she actually ended up interviewing hundreds of women at their gynecological exams and taking measurements of their genitals and asking them about their sex lives, which is totally unheard of. And she publishes in a medical journal under her male pseudonym. Um, she was able to do this because she had a lot of privilege and she was wealthy and noble. Like this was just totally out there. Um, and she decides that actually it's not about psychologically becoming a woman always and having this experience sometimes it's just about your anatomy and you know freud is famous for saying anatomy is destiny and marie bonaparte said actually i think some women just don't have this experience and guess what like anatomy actually can be changed with medicine um and she helped develop a surgery to move her clitoris closer to closer to the opening of her vagina um and that in a way is really really sad that she felt such pressure from society to actually uh, surgically change her body um, because she thought she was supposed to have a certain type of experience. Yeah, but there was in, in history, there's a great deal of, of um, slashing around at uh, women's bodies <laughs> to uh, to oh. Uh, oh, stop them masturbating or to change their feelings about things or stop them enjoying sex or make them enjoy. It, it's just it's uh, the book is littered with uh, st stories of it. Um, it yeah. it's it's hard to talk about because it's it's upsetting, especially when you get to the modern instances of it um it strikes me as the height of crazy but f for me marie bonaparte stands she's sort of emblematic of of all all these um these knowing how women should be instead of investigating how they actually are right she's such a compelling and complicated character because she is really flawed in her own ways and you know her her surgery does not work partially because of the lack of understanding of the full anatomy of this body part um and partly because the idea just didn't work um and it was like 1923 um but i mean she's one of the explorers and investigators who comes up against this vast ignorance and lack of curiosity about the female body and all of these assumptions that have been built by people who don't have these bodies and she tries in her own way to make inroads into better understanding. And part of that is talking to hundreds of people who have these body parts and finding out what their lives are like and what their bodily experiences are. Um, so in that way, I think she is an introduction to the other explorers that we meet in the book. In addition to the very interesting case histories and stories that you tell us, there's a fascinating discussion in the book of the nature of the uh, vaginal biome, the, uh, the ecosystem of the vagina, which, again, I found very interesting. Um, and I want you to talk mm. about a little bit about that, because, again, it, it's something that's been misunderstood. Every every time, you know, women in the past have been uh, douching or, or, or deciding, or, or been told that their, their systems were dirty and needed to be... <laughs> cleaned and, and, and fragranced mm -hmm. uh, they were they exactly. were damaging the the ecosystem exactly and honestly it's really common today it's definitely not in the past like one in five american women douche and the what do you call it the feminine hygiene industry is just like millions and millions of dollars and you'll see ads everywhere for this stuff um so and 
gynecologists for a long time have fought this and said, like, they always use the term that your vagina is a self-cleaning oven, which I don't love. It's not a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but their point is you don't want to stick stuff up it and disrupt it. Um, it's doing fine on its own. It uh, It's done fine for your whole life. Um So, yeah, I was also totally fascinated by the vaginal microbiome, and it's something I got into after having my own experience with the infection um, because I realized that there was a lot going down there, going on down there that I didn't know about. Um, It really is a very complex ecosystem. Um, It's like in your gut, even though the composition is different, but there are millions and millions of microbes, and that includes uh, yeast, which are fungi and viruses, um, but mainly kind of the keystone species is often something called lactobacillus, um, which ferments uh, sugars into a mild acid, and it keeps the vagina about the level of acidity as a glass of red wine, which I love. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just me and my vagina hanging out. Um, (laughs) So that's really important because it helps protect your health and protect you against um, bacteria you don't want going in there uh, and states that are less balanced. Um, And it's I think of it as an extension of your immune system. It's really protecting like the 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 you of your organism from the not you of the outside environment. And when it gets out of whack, then you can have issues and disbalances, um, one of which is BV, which I had. Um, So there are now efforts to kind of biohack this environment and strengthen it for women who are having issues. And there's work to do vaginal uh, transplants, so entire microbiome transplants. And it's not dissimilar from fecal transplants, which there was a huge ick factor and kind of a lot of concern when that came out. Uh, also recognize that really important for people who had uh, a devastating and sometimes deadly gut disease, um, C. difficile. And it's a little more difficult in the vaginal case because there is also an ick reaction to women's vaginas, which is something I go into in the book. Um, but there's also not a recognition that some of these conditions and it's, are totally life-altering and ruin people's lives and relationships. Um, because, well, honestly, as a lot of the microbiologists I talked to said, um, women's sexual health is not prioritized and not funded. And until you can make it about something else like uh, uh, not <laughs> reproduction or, uh, or uh, HIV or something, and then the, the, the medical profession gets interested. Exactly, exactly. And that's what those researchers are emphasizing in their applications for grants, uh, because that is what they can get funding for. When I mentioned to a friend uh, that I'd be talking about this book, she said, oh, yes, that woman writing about endometriosis, which, of course, yeah, you touch upon. It's not, it's not what the book's about, but that's a, it's a part of it. Um, you do write about it. You suggest that it might be the most misdiagnosed illness of all time. I... That I do have like a footnote in there's a chapter on endometriosis that really is kind of the chapter on the uterus because the way that endometriosis works really shows how incredibly dynamic the lining of the womb is and how it responds to this like orchestra of hormones every month and really rebuilds itself and then cuts itself off and sheds. Um, And there are some endometriosis surgeons who did a historical paper and said, like, actually, we've seen signs of this since ancient times, these kind of menstrual disorders. And 
diagnoses like hysteria, which again, Freud was really important in repopularizing, um, may have obscured or included a lot of women with menstrual disorders. So there's not any conclusive evidence that endometriosis was this uh was what was being called hysteria and other things, but they're saying probably nobody categorized or properly listed tons and tons of instances of menstrual disorders. And at least it, it suggests that the women really were ill rather than just being, you know, girly and, and pathetic. <laughs> wow. I mean, I don't love those terms, um, but yeah, that is a big point I make is that there was a big shift from hysteria in ancient times being considered like literally your womb is wandering on your body and you have a biological problem that can be solved, which, you know, is wrong in its own way. But it later became eh, actually you have a psychological problem and the problem's all in your head and it's manifesting as physical symptoms. And yeah, that's really what mm, screwed over uh, a lot of women because these are biological diseases they almost always have biological markers and ways that you can diagnose people, but we haven't been looking for them. We haven't cared or we haven't bothered to do the work to diagnose them. So now there's work to make a much easier diagnostic tool by using uh, menstrual blood, for instance. You have a great line in there. Instead of blaming uteruses, Freud cut to the chase and blamed women, which right. made me laugh. <laughs> Finally, um, Rachel, what do you hope people will take from this book? I really hoped to chronicle this history of often either like shame, stigma, or disinterest in this really important part of the body um, so that we can be more literate about seeing when these biases creep in, um, either in our own thoughts or in the scientific work we read about um, or the medical systems that we all interact with. And I really hope that once you kind of go through this journey with me into the center of the female body, you come away feeling like actually um, the body is more resilient and dynamic and active than it's been characterized for centuries and centuries. And there are a lot of really concrete examples of what the ovaries and uterus and vagina are doing for you throughout your life and the ways that they are regenerating themselves and actively contributing to your health and your immune system. And really, like, I feel very thankful for mine. And you in no way have to have any interest in making a baby or be able to, uh, to appreciate the wonder of your own body. Well, it's had that effect on me. I, as you can tell, found it extremely interesting, uh, learned a lot, and it's completely transformed my understanding of the whole system. So, so thank you very much. Thank you so much for reading. I'm so glad. Thanks for having me on here. The book is Vagina Obscura by Rachel Gross. It's published by W.W. Norton, and in Britain it's £19.99. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>